0: Hi, you're listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Locked On Podcast Network. Today's episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra. At only 2.6 carbs and 95 calories, it's only worth it if you enjoy it. Stay tuned for the Ultra Player of the Week coming up later in the episode. Jake Fisher is an NBA reporter for Bleacher Report. His work has previously appeared in Sports Illustrated and Slam Magazine. He emailed me a few weeks ago about his new book, Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. And uh, I read this book over the weekend. I was really intrigued. There's tons of great draft insights and stories about how this process goes. Of course, it focuses primarily on those tanking years between 2013 and the 2015 NBA Draft, with the 76ers sort of at the heart of this, but stories about the Celtics, the Suns, the Lakers, the Kings, the Cavs. I thought it was an awesome book, Jake, and thanks for writing it. Yeah, and thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: I mean, thanking me for writing it—that's like that's very kind of you to say. So yeah, and again, appreciate the platform and looking forward to diving into draft with you know one of the foremost draft guys there is. Well, one of the things that I, I love about it is all the behind-the-scenes stuff that that you do
0: and the, and the stories. Uh, you have 300 interviews with NBA personnel. I was really impressed with the ability that you got so many people to comment on what was happening and talk about this process. There's draft workout stuff. There's jostling for picks. Uh, it, it it was really a fun read, and for someone like me who loves the the NBA draft, that this is you know this is what I, I couldn't put the book down. I, I actually read it nearly cover to cover uh, from, from start to finish. And so I, I thought you did a great job writing. It. It's really interesting. And, and, I, and I thought it's appropriate as we're getting closer to the draft here because there's so many insights in the book into how this actual draft process works, what it looks like, the thinking behind it, uh, and using history, the 2013, 14, and 15 draft as, as sort of a backdrop for this. And I, I want to start by talking about the draft lottery and tanking and teams playing to playing to lose or building to lose so that ultimately they, they can win a championship. This has been controversial in the NBA. It's certainly Sam Hinkie didn't invent this. This has gone on for, for years. The NBA keeps adjusting the lottery system to try to deal with it. But talk to me a little bit about, at the start, about just how important of a tool is the NBA draft when it comes to building the NBA championship? Because I don't actually even think everybody agrees that it's necessarily the most important tool.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, team building is contextual, right? And like you mentioned, what, what I've come to learn in my eight years reporting around the NBA is that this this is a business and an ecosystem and a marketplace far more than it is a sport and a game. And because of that, you know, when you're building a team, you're building you know a, a, a an organization and a workplace and coworkers that all have to you know have their own individual agendas as to where they want to live and work and who they want to play with and what kind of style they want to do all that type of stuff. So. I think if you're not the Lakers, if you're not Brooklyn, or maybe we'll see New York this year and, and for agency finally get the stars that have gone to Miami and you know the bigger market teams, if you're not those guys, you know, the most direct route for I mean, we saw it this year in this 2021, you know, race for the lottery with OKC and Detroit and Houston and Orlando, the most direct route to getting all-stars and bona fide all-stars, bona fide franchise creating talents. Is in the top five of that draft. And I think the calculus really you know came to the forefront of, of the NBA you know conversation when people like Sam Hankey and Daryl Morey and Rob Hennigan and Ryan McDonough and Pete Dalessandro came to power and really realized that like the, the sheer obvious odds are getting these guys in the top five and the best way to be there is to be the worst team in the league because if you're the middling Sixers for a decade after AI takes you to the finals in 2001, you're just never going to get good enough again to get that talent to leapfrog those teams in the middle where you're at and really truly become a contender. What's What's
0: interesting about, about that theory that I think is sort of generally accepted is that your top five pick that you draft almost never leads you to an NBA championship, right? There's There's LeBron. Yeah. Uh, and he has uh, DeAndre Ayton uh, may end up doing it this year for the for the Phoenix Suns. Though he's certainly not the guy who's leading uh, the Suns to a championship. That's Chris Paul, uh, who you know ends up moving around the league. And so one of the things I think is really interesting about this is you're trying to find a superstar, but the chances of that superstar staying with the team long enough to get you to an actual championship is is, is really sketchy uh, in the league and especially for small market teams.
1: And I think that's part of why I want to write this book being that everyone, maybe, maybe you will ask me this as well later on the road. Everyone wants to know if the process worked. Right. And I, I think, you know, I, I wanted to have the book be a bunch of different case studies of the same type of idea where you have Sam Yankees, you know, abundantly brazen, you know, we're just going to be bad year after year after year versus you have the Celtics who they start from this great starting point of you know, trading contending type guys who've actually won the title, right? KG and Paul Pierce. And, you know, if you have teams starting at different starting points, they're obviously going to have different paths and different unforeseen variables pop up throughout their experiments. And it's really difficult it's not to, to, it's so easy to tear a roster down and to get that guy, but it's very difficult to build a true harmonious environment around that star. Like the Atlanta Hawks are probably the best modern day example of how to do it. They, they got Trey young, they got other complimentary pieces around him in the next couple of drafts and they signed a couple of veterans this summer and they got into the playoffs and they made it pretty far. Like I, I think, it very rarely goes that way, but that's the vision that all these executives sell their ownership. They sell them on this three-year window. That's why Brett Brown, for example, was staunch about getting a fourth year on his first year contract uh, with Philly. But you know, there's so many unforeseen variables and unexpected things and injuries and infighting and personality clashes that often get in the way of making that you know just direct path from the top 5 back into championship contention
0: one of the things i appreciated about your book was that you did show this not just through the lens of the 76ers but the celtics the suns even the lakers who sort of have a down a downturn there and 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 get some high picks you, you show us the Sacramento Kings who keep doing the same thing every year. They're in perpetual <laughs> perpetual tank mode. Uh, the Cavs are there for a little bit, you know, coming off LeBron. You show that there's sort of different approaches up this mountain, but, but all of them are difficult for a couple of reasons, and I'll, I'll get into this more later in the podcast, uh, but one is it's very difficult to do player evaluation for the draft. And, and we'll talk about that later, right? Like if you're going to do it this way, you got to get your draft picks right. And that, and that's really hard to do even when you have very extensive draft processes in place as people like Sam Hinckley um, did. Two, you have to build a culture and that, that culture has to be a culture that can survive all of those those lean years uh, and put into place something where players really seen, feel seen and heard and valued and what have you and I think one of the things that kind of stood out for me with many of these franchises, though not all, they had very dysfunctional owners or very dysfunctional general managers in the sense of how they relate to human beings. And and one of the things that I think, and again, I'll, I'll, we'll get on this later, I'm previewing some of the podcasts later, is one of the things that came out of this is a very human story about what happens when you treat human beings as numbers, as as you know commodities as opposed to actual human beings and and some of the downfall of some of these franchises by by approaching it this way. Um, did, it, did it surprise you at all? Because I, I think that I think that for the average fan out there that doesn't get close to ownership and doesn't really get close to sort of the inner workings of the front offices, it's astounding reading your book, how unprofessional at times things were, how dysfunctional uh, relationships were between owners and and uh, general managers, between coaches and general managers, between general managers and players. I mean, there's so much intrigue going on here. Everybody thinks that the thing is scouting, but maybe they really need you know, a good conflict resolution and team building skills, and, and almost none of these folks possess it.
1: Yeah, I, I talk about this a lot and like just weekly conversations with people around the league that in a, in a business and a sport that's considered so much to be about relationships and connections, a lot of people are really bad at them. And I think it's because the NBA and I think professional sports at large, the team sports, it's this weird dichotomy where it's a team sport, right? But everyone inside of it is trying to move up and also trying to advance their own monetary agenda, right? Players are trying to put themselves in positions to make their next contract or to enhance their legacy executives and coaches are trying to do what they can to, you know, outlast their or their competition or just increase their staying power and, you know, contribute a, a narrative that their are their owner is going to believe in and keep paying them to do that job. So but they're all, you know, get further muddied when all this stuff gets leaked out publicly to try to swing those narratives, right? And like Sacramento, like you mentioned, I mean, Vivek Ranadive right away hiring Pete D'Alessandro after hiring Michael Malone back in 2013, like automatically started the hot seat questions of, oh, will this executive want to keep the coach? And then, you know, as those rumors continue to swirl, like you flash forward to that next summer in 2014 when when mike malone's coaching staff is out to lunch in las vegas they're walking out of some random restaurant on the strip which everyone knows who's been to vegas like there's hundreds of restaurants on the strip and the same exact one as they're walking out who walks in as george carl is being rumored to be michael malone's potential replacement but michael malone vivek and a senior advisor at the time Chris Mullen. And then five months later, whatever it was, when they do fire Michael Malone, George Carl is the replacement. And soon after comes in Vlade Divac just to be a quote unquote special advisor. But then you know he pushes out Pete D'Alessandro basically in just a couple of months. And I don't think, you know, any type of organization in any business, let alone, you know, this one we're talking about the NBA, like I, I don't see how. You can be successful if you know the people at the top making all the decisions are on their own carousel, on their own game musical chairs in their own right.
0: Well, I actually think you see this, Jake. I mean, we're, we're some of these teams you see over and over again and, and you look at and you can look at le- uh, leadership. You can look at ownership. You can look at leadership and and see where more stable franchises like the San Antonio Spurs have had 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 so much more consistency because they lead with culture. And we're seeing this in Oklahoma City, we see this in Utah. And and by the way, many of those led by Spurs family tree around General Manager's a completely different approach to the game. But even in Utah, it gets dysfunctional when a new owner comes in this year and and takes a, a very stable franchise and and throws it into chaos uh, this summer now. And and you know it's it's really, really hard because you have big egos involved. Uh, like you said, you have millions and millions of dollars on the line. These owners that get involved in many cases, they don't do it just so that they can sit courtside. They they think they know basketball and they want to put their stamp on the team. And, uh, you know, the, the coaches think that they they know basketball and want to put stamp on the team. The general managers think that they know it and they're they're many times three different agendas happening at once. And then, as you pointed out, then the players have their own agendas as well. Uh, it's, It's really, really hard to get all this together. And the best teams that never end up sort of in these situations have figured out a calculus that I don't even think the Sixers tried to solve. And I think that that's, you know, one of the really interesting things is they may have been actually trying to solve for the wrong problem. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that we often think we have the answers when it's the questions we have wrong. And in, in this particular case, uh, it oftentimes seemed like Sam Hinkie was asking the wrong questions, even though he had answers uh, for them. It wasn't sure that the, the questions were right. It's ironic to me, by the way, that the process in Philadelphia starts with the Sixers trading Drew Holiday, who they don't believe is a building block. Um, to build a franchise around. And now he's the starting point guard on the Milwaukee Bucks uh, play, playing in the finals. I mean, it, there's a certain irony that sort of comes full circle. One of the first things he did was evaluating Drew Holiday, a young point guard that many people were high on the league, said, I don't think you're a building piece for us. I'm going to go draft the guy who has a torn ACL uh, and a questionable background and believe in, the, in New Orleans Noel and believe that he will be. And, and that's how the process starts.
1: It does. And, and I guess to play a little bit of devil's advocate, Sam also, I think, wanted to make that trade. Be, well, first of all, before I even say that, I, I would say I don't think he, he was alone in thinking that Drew Holiday was maybe just a one-time all-star point guard. He still has only been a one-time all-star point guard. And, you know, I, I think when he took over that roster, he looked at, you know, now it's fancy on Twitter. We can see all the time these graphics people put out ranking all the assets that a team has players and future draft picks and whatnot Philly was their, their future picks were, were out the door. They had gone to Orlando for some trade to move up and get Arnett Moultrie in, in the first round a couple of years prior. I think he viewed Drew Holiday, not only as not that guy, but also as an opportunity to get another first round pick in that 2014 class, which that's another big factor. Why this happened at this certain time period, it was, you know, the combination of Hinkie and Hennigan and Ryan McDonough and all these analytical guys coming to power also at the same exact time that LeBron joined Miami because they had Dwayne Wade and he brought Chris Bosh with him. And the Thunder had just tanked from 2007 to 2009 to get KD, Russ and Harden. And that 2014 draft of Wiggins and Jabari and, and, and Joel Embiid was considered to be the best class since 2003. So I think, I think Sam was betting on that extra lottery ticket in 2014. Maybe like, Oh, maybe we'll get LeBron and Wade 2.0. You'll take that over Drew Holiday, right?
0: Absolutely. Uh, Though the results are that he really drafted only one person, Joel Embiid, that was better than Drew Holiday, uh, you know, out of this process. And so this is the fickleness of the draft. And, you know, this also, this, this belief that what lays out there in the future is better than what you have in the present. It's the grass is greener approach, which can be accurate. And you saw Oklahoma City, for example, draft you know a, a series of three MVPs in a row, um, but then have problems holding on to them because uh, you know of the market that they played. But you know you can get this right. But it's just like I can go to Vegas and I can I can I can hit it big, and and maybe I have a. A formula that i'm going to put put in place that's going to help me do it but these casinos have figured out a lot of stuff uh oftentimes more than the person who thinks they've got the casinos figured out
1: sure and i think that is part of the brilliance to what sam's strategy was you know i don't think he did anything super um out of left field that you know couldn't have been done anywhere else but doing it and really investing in, in the longest view in the room and, and collecting as many darts to throw at that dartboard, it allowed for the margin for error. It allowed for the opportunity to miss on Nerlens and miss on MCW and miss on Jalil Okafor because if you do get Joel Embiid, you know, you're still there. You're still the number one seed in the East, even if Ben Simmons is, is – you know, now on the trade block. And you've also let go of Jeremy Grant and, you know, other contributing players. Like if you get that one guy, if you only go one for seven, but that one is the pretty damn good one, it still kind of works out in the long run.
0: All right. He's Jake Fisher. His new book is Built to Lose, How the NBA Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. When we come back, we're going to talk about draft process. We, we get a deep dive in this book into the actual process of the draft, and I want to pick Jake's brain um, a bit about this. You're listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board, a Locked On Podcast Network. This is a brand new segment brought to you by our partners at Michelob Ultra. It was a tough choice for me to pick this week's ultra moment, but it has to be Giannis Antetokounmpo. Two weeks ago, Antetokounmpo's injured his knee in what looked like a potential season-ending injury. Sunday night, he led the Bucs to a win over the Suns in Game 3 of the NBA Finals. Needed only 38 minutes to throw together his second consecutive 40-point double-double. Wow, Giannis Antetokounmpo, a guy that went 15th in the draft, and a lot of people really questioned uh, what he was going to be. He's been awesome. Go check out tons of other exciting Ultra Moments with hashtags ultra moment. Michelob Ultra, it's only worth it if you enjoy it. Only 2.6 carbs and 95 calories. Joy creates success. Enjoyment isn't the end game. It's the whole game. Don't let the stress of daily life weigh on your body, whether you're an elite athlete or someone like me. Just trying to make it through the day tension-free, Theragun can help. Theragun is the handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combo of depth, speed, and power, it's as quiet as an electric toothbrush. The Gen 4 Theragun doesn't just feel good, it gets to the source of the pain by releasing tension using Theragun's signature percussive therapy, which gives 60% deeper than a vibration alone. Whether you want to treat your muscle tension from working out, an injury, or just the stresses of everyday life, there's no substitute for the Theragun Generation 4. Try Theragun for 30 days starting at only $199. Go to theragun.com. Go to theragun.com slash locked on right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's theragun.com slash locked on Theragun.com slash locked on. And we are back with Jake Fisher, who just wrote an incredibly interesting book. I just finished it this weekend. It's called Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. We're talking about the Philadelphia 76ers, draft, tanking, all this different stuff. And I want to talk about draft in this section. One of the quotes from the book, and, and you alluded to it, was that Hinky said, That the draft is really hard and that everybody's going to make mistakes, so you just want to have as many darts to throw at the dartboard as possible, right? And, And one of the things I actually like about that quote is a recognition for a guy that's put a ton of energy into trying to figure out the draft analytically, databases, all sorts of formulas. Look, the draft is sort of a crapshoot. It just is. Even the analytics guys that have tried to work on these formulas sort of recognize this is a really, really hard thing. And so his strategy is let's collect as many prospects as we can. And like you said, maybe hope that like one in seven of these Prospects really hit because if you get a superstar. you are
1: hoping for more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're
0: hoping for more. And and pro- probably part of the downfall of maybe, if you want to say the process didn't work, is that they probably maybe needed to go like two or three for seven instead of, uh, you know, one for seven. Here's who they drafted. Nerlens Noel, Michael Carter-Williams, Joel Embiid, Dario Saric, KJ McDaniels, Jeremy Grant, Jalil Okafor, all in that sort of uh, range right now. We know Joel Embiid turned out to be a stud, uh, second runner-up in MVP voting this year, but didn't play for the 76ers for two seasons, uh, which is is really crazy. So there's a huge, huge risk there. It's the only reason he was still on the board at three. Only reason. What did you learn? I know you talked to a lot of front office people. What did you learn about the draft process and how to correctly evaluate draft talent?
1: The first thing that I think is fascinating is that the lottery really is something that these guys are all shaking in their boots about because I mean, look at this year, right? OKC, they fell to six and there's this great strategy, no matter how good their process is, you know they're only going to get, this is kind of like a six player draft. I think now everyone was calling it a five player draft before, you know, they're going to get the sixth guy and for all that work for that. Right. But even if you get the number one pick, you know, the, the immediate thought, first of all, as we talked about a little bit in, in the first segment is, is the guy we take here, is he going to want to stay here long-term? That's a thought process that, Every single franchise really has to consider, I mean, Zion Williamson back in 2019, there's talk about Cade Cunningham this year. I mean, going back to Joel Embiid that we talked about, there was rumors he didn't want to play anywhere outside of Los Angeles because he was living at his agent Arn Helm's house, rehabbing from that foot injury. I've got a detail in the book, not at the top of the draft, but in, in 2015, the next year, Devin Booker only went to Phoenix because he refused to work out for Utah, who was selecting one pick ahead of the Suns. And that was a big fear that the Jazz had and and a reason why they passed on him. They did not want to take a player who they thought would be walking out the door in a couple years. So after that, you know, you go back to Ben Simmons as well. Like, he wasn't the pick after they pushed out Sam Henke and Brian Colangelo took over he was not definitely going to go number one until Philly was able to work with his representatives and get him in that arena and get him in their practice facility and really like get, make sure that him and the, and the agent and the whole you know representation team were all on board. And I think that is something that fans don't really understand goes on, not just from the top of the draft, but all the way down to the 60th pick as the second round comes on. Like again, everyone probably knows about Prospect workouts and, you know, agents are kind of trying to get their players in front of as many different decision makers as possible and putting them in groups that they think they, you know, can have their client really shine against a certain level of of competition. But, you know, a lot of the picks even from 35 on, from 35 to 60, usually – there's a a caveat at play where that player is only being selected because they've agreed to some type of non-guaranteed contract or to go get uh, drafted and stashed overseas. There's a lot of back channel conversations that go into a lot of, a lot of these selections that I don't think fans really understand is, 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 you know, kind of driving, I'd say half the selections in the draft every year.
0: Yeah. It's really fascinating to have a bunch of great stories, whether um, that was Robert Covington, uh, refusing to agree to a deal with Philly, even though Philly really liked him because of the deal. Sam Hinkie was to uh, guys like Nick Stauskas, who his agent really didn't want him to play in Sacramento because he saw it as a dysfunctional franchise. Uh, but at the end of the day, there was a pull there too because you're not sure where Nick Stauskas is going to go, but he has a chance to go to this sort of guaranteed spot. Really interesting that Mark Bartelstein, Nick Stauskas's agent, at the end relents and lets them work out Stauskas after saying that he wasn't we were talking a lot about this in the draft there's no way I'm going to let him work out for the Kings he does he gets drafted and then every fear that he has about what's going to happen to him on the Kings absolutely happens to Nick Stauskas
1: yeah yeah I mean there's there's situations like that across the board I mean Atlanta in 2013 if you want to talk about you know talents in these finals Danny Ferry and the Hawks they were dead set on drafting Giannis and they had the 17th and 18th picks and they thought you know what why wouldn't why wouldn't any team picking 13 through 15 take our two picks just to move back a couple slots but they couldn't find a trade partner. They, they, they almost had one in Dallas at 13 that year, but the Mavericks, remember, this was back when they were still trying to splurge in free agency every summer and they were trying to keep salary space available. They didn't want to take the Hawks two guaranteed contracts on their books for the next four years and muddy their salary for 13 and 14 and other free agencies to come. They actually traded that pick instead to Dallas or to the, to Boston, which ended up being Kelly Olinick. And, you know, two spots later, the Bucks swoop in and take Giannis, even though the only team Giannis had visited was Atlanta and Danny Ferry put him up in his house and had dinner with him at his kitchen table with his kids, you know, sitting with Giannis and Thanasis, all that clandestine secret work. It was for nothing because the team ahead of them just swept them out, out from under them anyway. And the Bucks never even worked out Giannis in the first place.
0: You know, and, and one of the ironies of this is, you know, John Hammond gets this great credit for drafting Giannis, but I talked to John Hammond on draft night and uh, I was surprised. And yes, they liked Giannis, but they had no idea what they were getting with Giannis. Uh, they, they were not as high on him as Atlanta was, who really did believe that Giannis was going to be a superstar in the league. They, they sort of lucked into Giannis, where there wasn't just really anybody else on the board that we liked that much. He's going to be interesting. The Bucs at the time were trying to be a playoff team. And so, you know, the source of one of my most infamous tweets calling him a, a D League player was in part because that's what John Hammond told me that night is, is we're going to put him in the D league and let him play for a couple of years. And why we try to run out this, this franchise and then, you know, we'll see what we have. And, and that's the team that the Hawks lost him to. um, Right. It's it's not some team that had figured this all out with Giannis, but a team that just was like, ah, we'll put him in the D league and, and, and see what happens. But, you know, obviously, Giannis becomes this 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 great star and. You know, I'm curious as you are looking through this process, you know, analytics are playing a role as well. Uh, you're, you're, you're seeing right now the sort of rise of Moneyball and sort of thinking about what this looks like at the NBA level. You have lots of conflicts between traditional scouting. You have, by the way, the Mavs front office, who was probably Donnie Nelson and Tony Ronzoni, the other team that was deeply into Giannis, begging Mark Cuban just to take him. But Mark Cuban was like, why am I going to draft this guy that's not going to help me win? Uh, you know, basketball games. You've got owners that are thinking about all of these sort of issues. The draft is messy. And, you know, we put together these big boards and mock drafts, but the messiness behind everything that's actually happening is is, is crazy. And one of the things I thought you you explained the process that Philadelphia had before and then sort of after Hinky and I thought this was really interesting because I think it sort of reflects processes where teams put together a board. Maybe you could just kind of walk us through what that process looked like before and then what, what Hinky did to sort of change it.
1: For sure. I think across the league, um, the general traditional basketball PhD, we played in the league. We know who better than anybody approaches. You get all your scouts in a room and in, you know, in pre-COVID, you know, regular calendar years, let's say. You know, right, right before the, the tournament in March, you get your scouts together and you make your, you know, one through 100, one through 200, whatever it is. And you do that, you know, every six weeks or so up until the draft after you've seen the tournament and the combine and you have the lottery standings and you get your guys in workouts and you're, you're collectively tinkering and, and using your your group conversations to, you know, pitch pros and cons against guys and make your arguments and move guys, you know, up and down the board And, and hopefully by draft night, you've got your order. And just when you're up on the clock, you just pick your top guy bill. That's how a lot of teams I think did it really up until 2010, like up until this advent of, you know, really juicing your strategy with advanced analytics and projection models and all that type of stuff. So when Sam comes into play in 2013, he got hired. I think it was only a couple like the week before the combine, a lot of six for staffers, met him for the first time in the interview interview room in Chicago, like 15 minutes before the first prospect walked through that door and they're about to interview him for the job, basically. So that just goes to show the, the tone already heading into that pre-draft process of, you know, kind of being in the dark and not really having a simpatico full understanding, how are we going to do this? And then throughout the rest of, you know, May and June that year, you know, it, it was a holdover of a lot of people from that old staff the Courtney Whitties and Tony DeLeo's of the world who had been in Philly for, you know, two decades and, and drafted a lot of good guys. They got Andre Godal late and Thaddeus Young late and Drew Holiday later in the first round and Nick Vujovic later in the first round, even, you know, drafting Lou Williams in the second. Like they had a really strong draft track record and here comes Sam Hinkie, and when they're having these group discussions He's not even saying anything. He's trying intentionally to not bias the group. And when draft night comes around, his office in the six years old facility was kind of like adjoining hotel rooms where his office was separated by like double doors into the whole big conference room where all the scouts were out in that room. And the only people in his office were Joshua Harris and David Blitzer, the owners, his right-hand man, Sachin Gupta, who came over from Houston, who's now obviously still a longtime executive. And then holdovers, Courtney Woody and Rob Thorne. Those are the only six people who even knew about the Drew Holiday trade for neurons the Well until it came out on ESPN. Maybe you were even talking about it on that broadcast, Chad. And like, you might have broken the news to the majority of Sixers staffers that they were trading this quote-unquote all-star point guard future franchise piece of, the, of whatever. And from there, you know, Sam had these binders with all these different possibilities of what he thought every team would do to every pick and what that would stem, the ripple effects moving down the lottery. And the only people who knew were in that room. They would call in sometimes – Some scout who, let's say, had really good intel, really good sources and connections from Texas. So they wanted to check out, you know, Miles Turner in 2015 or, you know, any prospect Jared Allen, whatever. Well, that was later in the future. I'm drawing a blank on our text to people. That was a bad example, but you get my point. They bring them in and get their intel, and then they dismiss them back, you know, to the classroom from going into the principal's office, if you will. And a lot of staffers weren't happy with that type of in- in- inclusive, separative type of environment that they established. Yeah, really
0: fascinating stuff. And if you're a draft Nick, and you really want to get inside these front offices and what's happening, Jake does a really great job of of telling those stories and multiple front offices in the draft. It was one of my favorite, favorite parts of the book. You know, we go back and look, you know, S- Sam has this process. He's a relentless worker. Uh, he He's got all these analytical models. And you wonder what could have been, right? Like, if you're gonna tank anyway, and Nerland's Noel can't help you, why not take Giannis Antetokounmpo uh, at, at six or later? I, I think you included the anecdote that one of the owner's daughters or whatever was begging them to take Rudy Gobert, uh, right? Yeah. And yeah. And uh, so you know they could have had Rudy uh, in you know the next year in 2014 they get it right with Joel Embiid, but then at at 12 they get Dario Saric. And they could have had Nikola Jokic, uh, you know, Zach Levine. You can go through the list of a number of different prospects that were on the table for them uh, that they missed. And then maybe the most egregious that had everybody scratching their heads was the pick of Jalil Okafor at, at three. I mean, you've drafted three straight centers. There is no way these guys are going to play together. And I think this, is, this to me was the epitome Of When you think about things just as assets instead of as human beings, as a system, as a culture, and just think about, you know, I had at least one person in Philadelphia describe this pick to me is Sam thought that Okafor had the most trade value of of anybody. So we selected, he didn't think he was the best prospect. Christophs Porzingis was one, you know, step, uh, you know, behind him. Uh, Devin Booker was in that draft. I mean, there's a lot of other, other players he could have taken, but Sam just said he has the most trade value and we'll, we'll just figure it out. We'll let Brett Brown and, and, you know, we'll sort of figure this out. And I, and I think that he, you've got to give him credit that he's consistent with how he's approaching all of this. Uh, but you start to see how you can start to make mistakes like this and and wonder how such a progressive front office drafts a dinosaur in Jalil Okafor with the third pick in the draft, which was mind boggling, I think, for so many people at the time. And I think the point where he lost people in the process, right? I think it was the Okafor draft where people were like, this just doesn't make any sense anymore.
1: Yeah, and, and remember, you know, the strategy is always we're going to be in the playoffs three years after our first year tanking, right? So that 15-16 that season was supposed to be the first year that they, you know, made their way back. But remember, Joel Embiid broke his foot two weeks ahead of the draft, and that really changed everything uh, for a second time. He was out in L.A. rehabbing. I remember before he went back to L.A. at the end of the regular season, that 14-15 year, you know, Sixers staffers were teaching him drills and he was learning things in, like, an hour that it took a lot of other guys, like, three days to learn. And one game, one-on-one, like or three-on-three, whatever, some one-on-one setting, Joel, they're the well, they're on the block, and B just demolished him in the paint. They're like, this guy is the real deal. He goes to L.A., they're hearing all the great stories, and, again, breaks that foot one more time. So I think that changed the calculus for them a little bit Going into that draft, but also, you know, the mismanagement of the human side of things. You mentioned Christos Porzingis, like Sam wasn't able to meet with Porzingis at all when he went to the ASM, Andy Miller's um, agency, their pro day back you know, at Impact. Miller made a point to tell any staffer that worked for him, do not let Sam Henke talk to this guy. He he played cat and mouse with Hinky multiple times, scheduling meetings and canceling them, you know, doing everything he could to dissuade Philly from taking him at number three because they knew they had a promise from the Knicks at four, and they didn't want him to go to that center log jam. So all that, you know, all those factors come to play. And Bede's broken foot also allowed them to think, you know, maybe, maybe Ja is the, the solution just in case Embiid is a bust. And he never plays at all. But you're right. The trade value was absolutely a huge thing. I think they thought they'd be able to flip him after he won rookie of the year, just like you know, Michael Carter Williams the year before. They did the exact same thing, right? I think that was the the, the, the true strategy. And lo and behold, you know, he ends up getting into that fight in Boston. And that just starts the the, the, the trickle down effect of they bring in Jerry Colangelo and you know his grasp on those reins of that franchise just start to start to slip from his fingers.
0: He's Jake Fisher. Uh, His book, which is incredible, I really encourage everybody to to pick it up, is Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. When we come back, uh, I want to talk about at least one of my big picture takeaways um, from the book. I had actually a a bit of an emotional reaction to the end of the book, and I want to talk about it and just discuss it more. You're listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Locked On Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Rock Auto. With the ever-increasing numbers of makes and models, it's now impossible for your local chain auto parts stores to stock all the parts you need, why endure often pointless or seemingly intimidating questions, and wait while the person behind the counter orders the parts on their computer, choosing the only brand their warehouses happen to carry. You have computers with access to rockauto.com at home and in your pocket. Save time and money when using Rock Auto. Why choose to spend 30, 50, even 100% more for the same parts from a chain store or a car dealership? They have everything you could need. Brake parts, tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck, right? Locked on in their how did you hear about us box so they know we sent you amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. And we are back talking to Jake Fisher, who wrote an incredible new book, Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. I finished the entire book over the weekend. Couldn't put it down. Really affecting, for people that love the draft, all sorts of great backstories, workout stories, how front offices are working and scouting. So if you love the draft, I highly recommend uh, that you pick up the book. I'm going to go big picture here for a minute because actually – my background isn't as an NBA coach or scouting it's actually in conflict resolution I'm a conflict mediator I work at a at a at a university and and I had this very visceral reaction um to your book uh, and it there was this there's this um there's this quote that I use I I I work uh, at uh, at a university that's in the Pacific And I often use this this proverb. It's a Maori proverb uh, that uh, I use in my classes. It says, Hey, aha te, mea, nui, o, te, au. Hey, tongata. Hey, tongata. Hey, tongata. What is the most important thing in the world? It is people. It is people. It is people. And when you hear this story and the way that it plays out, There was this reaction, and maybe it's because I've spent a lot of time among these prospects and I spent a lot of time among young draft prospects, of the almost dehumanizing nature of the way that this was approached in Philadelphia and other places, Uh, the trades, uh, forcing players on bad teams to... Players coming up and asking, "Look, are we tanking? Are we intentionally losing? Not wanting to do that terrible communication? People finding out that they made a team or got off a team sometimes on the internet or what have you? No culture uh, at all in the in team. Demanding unfair contracts from players that would benefit uh, benefit the teams much more than the players. There was so much of this going on. The reason, one of the reasons Porzingis isn't going to." F- philadelphia for a workout isn't just because he might have a problem with the knicks it's that andy miller hated uh sam hinkey as did many of the agents that were working at the time the nba uh, other general managers uh didn't like them and didn't want to deal with uh them anymore and and this this thing that i think is is lost in in the nba that we can look at athletes as commodities uh, but when you do so uh Trouble is coming because they're people. And and when you see and treat people this way, bad things come. And and you see this over and over again happening, not just in Philadelphia, you see it happening in, in Sacramento, you see it happening in, in these other ways. And, and one of my big takeaways, if I was an owner or a general manager sort of reading this book, is that we don't need to invest more time and money in analytic models because they're not going to be able To to totally figure out the draft, Um, we need to spend more time thinking about how we build a culture, how we work on our relationships, personal relationships with people, understanding people, uh, and developing human beings, whether that's players, coaches, front office staff, or whatever. That was my big takeaway from the book, was that what got lost in this whole process were the actual human beings that were involved.
1: Yeah, I think in a lot of times in the NBA, those decision makers, they use the the concept that these guys are being paid millions of dollars as an excuse. And, you know, on one side of the coin, I think Sam Hinky doesn't get enough credit for what he did for a lot of people, being that he gave players who are considered on NBA Twitter and whatever, bottom of the barrel, like, D-League type guys, whatever, he gave a lot of people like Tim Frazier and Robert Covington and TJ McConnell and even like the Darius Johnson Odoms and, you know, Daniel Orton and guys who never would have really had consistent, legitimate opportunities to play meaningful NBA minutes and kind of audition for the whole league. He did do that for a lot of people. But on the, the flip side of it, his reward was, you know, giving them a lot of money, a hundred. You know, 1.4 million non-guaranteed or 800 thousand dollars, whatever. Like that's that's life-changing money for a lot of people. Um, But yeah, in in the grand scheme of of the NBA model, it's pennies and it's perpetuating this cycle where a lot of people on the doorstep of the league, players, coaches, executives, whatever, living year to year, not knowing what city you're going to be in. You know, giving all you have to this game, this this orange ball, basically. You know, only to have your, you know, contract be decided. You know, we're not going to guarantee it right on that deadline of that very same day. Teams are always operating with their bigger picture in mind and viewing everyone as a cog in their overall machine. Which I think we're starting to see a course correct right now, where you know, all, pretty much all the coaches that have been hired this summer are all players, former players who have are said to be really good at building relationships with the stars. Right? So maybe that's a change. Maybe that's also these executives trying to find another way to band-aid the problem that's really at hand here. And, you know, maybe that it will only continue to further show what the actual, you know, seismic plates that are happening or tectonic plates that are happening beneath the surface.
0: There's only like one point in the book that I kind of wanted to go punch Sam Hankey. And maybe you could sort of retell the story. But there was a year that the, the Sixers were under the threshold uh, for the minimum amount of money that they uh, had to spend uh, on, on, a, on a roster. And the penalty for that was that you had to make up that money, but it actually goes to the existing players on the roster. And so if you don't spend the the minimum floor that you need for a salary, the league forces you to spend it anyway, but it just goes back to your players. And the players are looking forward to this. They're excited about it. It's a reward. And you tell us what Sam Hinkie does.
1: Yeah, it's one of my, I think it's one of the more interesting anecdotes in the whole book being that I'm pretty sure it was the 15-16 season, which was when the Sixers were their worst under Sam Hickey and were potentially marching their way to being the worst team in NBA history. And they were partially that because they had a lot of the guys we just talked about, the Robert Covingtons, the TJ McConnells, the Jakar Sampson's, the Brandon Davies, who were only there on non-guaranteed deals and and allowed Sammy to have all this cap space to take, you know, JaVale McGee's $17 million salary back at the trade deadline to get an extra future first round pick. And as they get past the deadline, uh, you know, or they get to the deadline, this deal falls through with Joel Anthony, a three-team deal with Philly, Houston, and Detroit that would have sent Joel Anthony from the Pistons to the Sixers Donatus Montiunis, uh, to the Pistons and that but Monty Yunis famously fails his, his physical and the trade doesn't go through. And you know, the Sixers now are, are short of that money, like you said. And Itch Schmidt is telling me his palms are itching. TJ is so excited. You know, if you're making $800,000 to you know 1.4 million, like that type of minimum salary there, if you get an extra three hundred thousand dollars, that's a lot of money for those guys, especially when you're 22, 23, 24, just starting out your life let alone your, your career, and not knowing if you're going to have an eight-, nine-, ten-year career in the NBA. And they get to Detroit one night, and they're making fun of Joel Anthony and, like, a kind of tongue-in-cheek, like, we didn't want you anyway. Like, Carl Andrews leading a cheer on the bench saying, did we want Joel Anthony? All the players are going, hell no. And they're all kind of excited. And one day, Sam Hinkie, after the Phoenix Suns waved Sonny Weems, this player who was in Europe and – was doing pretty well, and Phoenix gave him an opportunity, and it didn't really work out. Um, he had a $3 million cap hit, and that's exactly the number. The Sixers were below the salary floor. So Sam Hinky brings on Sonny Weems, not for a couple of days, for like a week, and, you know, just cut him. After a couple, you know, however long he was on I don't even remember. And guys were giving him a cold shoulder in the locker room. And part of the reason why they did have to let him go was everyone was really not, you know, welcoming Sonny Williams into the team. And he cost those guys, you know, 300 grand each just for some clerical salary cap operation that, you know, I think Sam also partially did it because he was getting pressure from. It was a lot lot of the stuff in the league definitely does result from the media narrative. Right. And I think the concept that he was being so cheap as to not even reaching the floor. He was like, well, I'll show you. You can't even give me that. I'm going to reach the floor here. And in turn, it burned a lot of players who, like you said, they are people with with parents and kids and, you know, loved ones that they're trying to support.
0: Yeah. It was, it was a big takeaway for me and, and where I think the NBA can just get better. And and we see it in the way that fans treat uh, players at, at times in, in dehumanizing ways uh, you hear players complain about this, uh, typically not with coaching staff, though so occasionally you hear stories about that, but with front offices and things like that that these players have a point. and as you as you read through the book, it, the fact that they're making lots of money, which they are, and the fact that they're playing a game, that I think, you know, you and I probably wish that we were NBA players and could, you know, play and had that talent. I don't have that talent. I don't know about you, Jake, but I don't, I don't have anywhere near that basketball talent, you know, to play at that level.
1: I have a little bit of talent, but not nearly enough.
0: (laughs) That we think that the price for that, that the fact that they get to do those things is, is, is dehumanization. And, and I, and it was just something that you know, really, really stuck with me in the book, and and I and I think every front office should read this book, and take some lessons from it because it's not like everything Sam Hinkie did was wrong. There's there's many successful parts of the 76ers, what the Celtics do, what other teams do, but I think the mindset, how we were seeing others while we were doing it, was was dramatically off, and it and it had a ripple effects that that cascaded down and, and and affected affected these franchises and those were as hard or harder to fix than just getting another talented uh, talented player and the best franchises seem to have this part figured out in ways that the the perennial built to lose franchises just don't
1: yeah i think one thing i've been talking about a lot as i've been doing podcasts and talking about the book is that everyone wants to live in this title or bust rings culture legacy world where you know if you want to really win a championship the goal is just to put yourself truly in that conversation in that you know small group of teams that have a five to seven percent chance of winning it because there's going to be something that happens that's out of your control you can only do as much as you can do you can only control as much as you can control and that's about it and i think with team building you know to to play again a little bit devil's advocate, Sam hinkey you know, he did find players that he and staffers that he kind of per, like like plucked and pinpointed as his guys. Like Christian Wood was someone that he really really loved and thought he had high upside. And Joel Embiid was someone who, I mean, Joel's brother died you know, very tragically. A, a truck rolled into his schoolyard, and Sam Hinky's at his hotel room in Philly that night, like crying with him and. Um, he he, to this day he has people come to his backyard and drink wine and look at the stars in the bay area with him and his wife but the people that he did view as data points and as building blocks they were that and you know it's also not just him i think i I see it more and more as i'm i report mostly like rumors stuff now at bleacher report and it it is kind of you know troubling to see how um i don't know if we can curse on this i'll just say poop flows downhill like you know, everyone's in self-preservation mode and, and exacting, you know, moves that in in the NBA that benefit themselves, honestly. And like I, you're right, I, I think a lot of teams would benefit, and 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 executives and personnel would benefit from recognizing the shortcomings that come from that. When you hire a coach that is just going to win the press conference, you know, that is going to make you look like you hired you know a glitzy name that makes you look like a good executive. Or, you know, you bring on certain people and get rid of certain people who don't get along with your star player, even if your star player is the one in the wrong. That was a lot of things that ended up plaguing Sacramento. Like Nick Staskis, you mentioned earlier, never really had a shot to be successful with the Kings because Demarcus was just berating him in practice every single day. If, if you're supposed to be the shooter is helping me and you have, you know, a couple of misses, like he didn't give him a chance to, to, to go through those rookie struggles he just bullied him and hit him with extra hard screens and gave him a little shoulder and scrimmages and stuff like that. So it's not just Sam Hinkie; it's, it's, it's something that I think a lot of people need to work on and improve on in, in this business and in this league.
0: He's Jake Fisher, NBA reporter for Bleacher Report. His book, Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. It's a must read if you care about the draft of the league at all. I, I really uh, love the book. And I'm gonna I'm gonna make an offer to my listeners right now. Retweet this podcast, and and one of you that retweets this podcast, I'm gonna buy you a copy of the book and send it to you on Amazon. Uh, and so uh, it's it's just a really great, great, great look, great writing, great reporting. Uh, we'll be following you, Jake, uh, at Bleacher Report and 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 the work that you've done. Really appreciate your time today on the podcast.
1: Sure, man. I appreciate your time. I appreciate all the kind words and the feedback, and thank you for keeping spreading the word.
0: Just a reminder to our listeners, next week, the Ultimate Mock Draft 2021, presented by Locked On and Odyssey, featuring analysis from the GOAT of NBA Mock Drafts. Hey, they're referring to me. I'm reading copy here. So they're featuring analysis from me, uh, as well as Odyssey NBA experts Brian Scalabrini and former general manager Ryan McDonough, who is featured prominently in this book. Our Lockdown NBA local experts will make selections and trades for your favorite basketball teams throughout the week long special event. Search the Ultimate Mock Draft 2021 on the new Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. Odyssey is your audio home for all the sports, podcasts, music, and news that matter to you. That's Odyssey, A U D A C Y. You can listen to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Lockdown Podcast Network. Aloha.